I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute. I'm joined for today's Insights podcast by Marco Alvera, the CEO of SNAM, one of the world's leading energy infrastructure companies and one of Italy's leading companies. And we'll be talking about lessons from the COVID crisis in Italy. Welcome, Marco. Thank you, Martin. Pleasure to be here. So I wanted to ask you from a um, CEO's perspective, uh, you know, what you see going on in Italy and any lessons that you've learned. So maybe could I kick off by asking you, what are some of the more interesting or creative crisis management measures that you've put in place at uh, SNAM? I would say the most creative is has to do with our dispatching center. That's a center with which we control the whole network in, in almost a third of Europe. It's one big room where people work 24-7. And that's necessary to keep the energy flowing and the, and the homes warm. And so my first concern was how to keep the people working there 24-7 safe and avoid any risk of contagion. One of our colleagues came up with the idea of purchasing a small shelter homes like the ones you use in earthquakes or hurricanes and put them in the parking lot of the office and ask colleagues voluntarily to actually lock themselves in so that we tested everyone, made sure they were negative, and then locked the colleagues inside the office so that when they get off the shift, instead of going home with the risk of contagion, they stay uh, in an independent uh, temporary accommodation. And I must say, we started doing this day one, and uh, it's proven very effective because a number of people around them have ended up, unfortunately, positive, and we've been able to preserve this mission-critical aspect of our job. So in a sense, you've been able to keep our operations going by running your own quarantine scheme. Yeah, we've asked people to to run the quarantine scheme in the premises and not at home. And we've been providing them, of course, with all sorts of assistance from psychological assistance to obviously all the, all the food and all the comforts that they wanted. But it was uh, something quite risky at the time because we didn't really know the, the, the event of a false negative was quite high. And so the risk was that they, we could actually increase the contagion by keeping them all in the same premises, but actually it worked out quite well. The other thing we did as it became clear that the health system was becoming overwhelmed and people were asked to stay at home and people were showing up to the hospitals when it was almost too late to save them is to provide employees and some of the suppliers with oximeters and pulsimeters and with clear instructions so that the people with a fever, with a cough, even before being tested positive, could keep track of their own oxygen level in the blood. These are instruments that cost 20, 30 euros. You can purchase them in large amounts. I think it's almost imperative to provide all employees with these. It's just like having a thermometer at home and measure it twice a day. There's now very sophisticated apps as well that allow you to then uh, keep track on the phone and then remotely with a doctor of what the situation is. Uh, but it's very important to catch this before the oxygen level drops below the kind of 92 level so that you can still have room for maneuver. It's been a, a, a very difficult crisis, at least as I've uh, read about it in the newspapers in Italy. What have been, uh, as, a, as a CEO, your toughest challenges so far? We've been unfortunate at, for, and fortunate at the same time. Our headquarters is right in the center of Lombardy, and a lot of our colleagues come from the hardest hit areas in this 
of course, means also some some tragedies at work and and in the families of our colleagues. So it's a very very difficult moment. But that has helped us have the courage to shut down the whole headquarter uh, essentially on the 21st of February. So this was two to three weeks before the rest of the country shut down. And some people criticized us for taking such a dramatic approach. Our scientists tell us that we've uh, saved lives and and certainly saved probably hundreds of, of contagions by shutting down early. So my, my key learning is to shut down as soon as possible, as soon as the first risk of contagion appears. The other uh, big, big challenge is to work with the supply chain because we're always as weak as uh, the weakest part of the supply chain. And so a lot of our effort now is working with suppliers, make sure they're as healthy as we need them to be and as uh, safe as we need them to be because our colleagues are going to be interacting very closely with suppliers. Of course, we need to continue to keep some operations on the ground for maintenance and development activities, some of which cannot be stopped. We're advising uh, clients that they need to think about um, these important reaction measures that you talked about, you know, health transport facilities, but also to look ahead, uh, to look ahead at the possibility of a recession and recessionary strategy, to think about the rebound and how to manage that, and also reimagining the business under the assumption that uh, the world may not return to uh, 2019 reality. We may actually have, have a different reality, a different pattern of demand and, and behaviors and beliefs. Are you thinking about reimagining your business at all? We are. Uh, we just had yesterday a big leadership meeting in which we we talked about going from smart working, which we're now all doing, to smart leadership and what are the lessons learned. Certainly, we have uh, seen an increase of productivity with people working remotely, a lot of focus on what's essential, a lot less time spent in travel and meetings and convening and gathering. And so a lot more use of technology. We've learned that we can really dematerialize and no longer have signed pieces of paper when an email will do. And we've also learned that we can uh, we can reduce uh, travel significantly. We think it's a marathon and people shouldn't sprint and uh, put in force measures that are not sustainable. Measures that are enacted, I think, need to stay there for a few months at least. And as we return to work, it will be very slow. It will be a lot of stopping goes. And really, we will not be able to have big gatherings and big meetings internally or externally until there's a vaccine uh, that's developed. So we're probably looking at 18 months before we get back to at least a normal pace of meetings. I think a lot of uh, people have also appreciated the quality of life of being able to spend more time at home with their kids or with their family. So we have decided yesterday to transform some of our jobs to uh, entirely remote now and offline, uh, off, off-site uh, jobs. And there's probably bigger areas of improvement in that space. So I don't think anyone knows when it will be over, but whenever it's over, whenever we return to a new normal, how do you see the world being different? I think we will no longer be shaking hands. Maybe we'll keep the handshake for the very important signing or closing of a deal. We won't be just shaking hands randomly with dozens of people in, in large meetings. I think there's going to be a use of technology to track uh, people who are safe, like they're doing right now in China. We're going to sacrifice a big amount of privacy in order to have apps telling us where it's safe to go, where it's less safe to go. There's going to be an emergence of new businesses. Uh, there's going to be a lot of a lot of care provided at the home and to the home, and, and I think a lot of delivery activities will 
continue to ramp up. And of course, there's going to be probably less tourism and less travel. One of the difficulties in trying to imagine the uh, the next normal is that we see big shifts in demand and probably a lot of those shifts are just either the, the temporary suppression of demand or hoarding or the postponement of demand. And many of those temporary behaviours will go away. On the other hand, we'll be left with some permanent shifts. Uh, how, how do you separate the permanent shifts from the, uh, from the temporary shifts? That's a great question. I think the uh, basic uh, commodities will recover uh, to, to a new normal. So I think the stocks that can be stocked, uh, such as oil and natural gas and other commodities, it's going to take a few more months to understand what that new normal is because now the markets are all distracted by people stocking uh, cheaper commodities. I think normal consumer activity will stay more or less what it was. I think what will really be impacted is uh, is a kind of big uh, social events, big trips, big uh, cruise and, and crowded uh, things. You know, one very interesting question for me is what happens to the carbon agenda? So we... Um you know, we all talked about it a lot, and yet uh, carbon emissions accelerated. We were not able to inflect the curve. But of course, now in an entirely unintended way, we have reduced carbon emissions. And uh, I'm just wondering, what, what happens to the carbon agenda? Do we, do we go back to regular consumption patterns? Do we actually learn that we can live at lower levels of carbon emission? Or does the whole thing get, you know, overshadowed by the epidemics? So what happens to the carbon agenda, do you think, as a as an energy industry CEO? I, I see uh, different approaches in different parts of the world. I think Europe will press ahead with a zero CO2 target for 2050 and very ambitious targets that the European machine is working on as we speak for 2030. So there's a lot of talk about a new Marshall Plan. There's a lot of talk about the Green Deal. There's a thousand billion euros, so trillion euros already committed to that. And I think this could be really a, a good opportunity for countries to invest money or to allow companies to invest money or to incentivize companies to invest money in, in something that can kickstart the economy as well as reduce emissions. In um, emerging markets where uh, energy prices are important, I think the fall in uh, oil prices means that renewables that had reached oil parity are now suddenly twice or three times more expensive than oil. And so there's going to be a kind of a slowdown in development of renewables where there wasn't such a political shift. I think other countries like the U.S. where uh, energy costs have come down, and so that means money in, in people's pockets, uh, there may be appetite for some new technologies like hydrogen to be developed. And I, I think it's uh, this could be one of the biggest opportunities. Also, we focus on CO2, but what really people are seeing today in polluted cities in Italy and in India and China is the air quality has been dramatically enhanced by uh, basically a lockdown of, of transport inside the city. So I think we're going to see an acceleration of new uh, modes of smart travel in cities uh, where it's not necessarily a diesel car commuting in and out of a city, but it could be a smarter traveler. I think people who have seen with first firsthand how cleaner the air can be will like to keep it clean going forward, regardless of CO2, which is a byproduct of uh, emissions as well as air qualities. I guess that brings us on to opportunities. Uh, as you know, the Chinese word for uh, a crisis uh, combines the characters for, um, for change and danger. Um, so there is 
opportunity. Um, doesn't seem like it's the right time to be discussing opportunities, but I think leaders have to look ahead and see the opportunities. What, what sort of positive opportunities do you see for your business coming out of this? I see assets becoming available. I see a lot of companies that are exposed to commodity prices will face balance sheet issues and may want to sell assets. And uh, as the market was very tight for assets before, I think there could be opportunities for asset purchases. I think, as I mentioned earlier, with the Green Deal, governments could really try to push for a green agenda and use that to promote CapEx. And some of our CapEx has a two to three time multiplier effect on GDP. So a country like Italy could promote investments, say, of 100 billion euros in the energy transition over three years. That could generate 300 billion of GDP, which would essentially make Italy uh, stronger than it was before uh, COVID. So I think this is uh, the biggest opportunity as well as uh, the use, greater use of, of technology and smarter processes now that we've discovered how effective we can all be at uh, working remotely. It seems that um, historically in wars and, and contagions, how, how we think about the world sometimes changes. And so one of our speculations is that we've built efficient supply chains and um, we're very good at measuring the efficiency of things, but not necessarily the, the resilience of things. And the, the, the crisis may have uh, taught us that it's important to measure and manage resilience too. Would you agree with that? And, and would you see any other ways in which the way that we think about business may, may shift as a result of this crisis? I absolutely agree with the resilience point. I think we used to have in Italy very capable suppliers of ventilators and masks. They've been cut out of the market because of cheaper uh, suppliers, as you say, very efficient supply chains internationally. I think governments are going to become uh, more nationalistic and protective, at least of the healthcare infrastructure side. Lastly, Marco, I wanted to ask you about your message to leaders in parts of the world that haven't seen the full force of the disease yet. Having lived through it, what would be your most important piece of, of advice to those leaders? What we've seen is that uh, the company's first and foremost responsibility should be to protect its employees. We see that not only important to keep morale high and a lot of employees will either uh, go through the crisis themselves or have close friends and relatives go through it even in dramatic situations. So to for an employee to feel the company's behind them is very important and keeps, keeps motivation high and, and enhances a sense of a purpose and belonging to the company. From an investor point of view, I think ESG is going to go even higher up on the agenda. We are seeing that every day. We talk to our shareholders and new prospective shareholders. ESG is top of mind. And I think uh, we may as well see an extra E be added to ESG uh, in terms of employees, environment, employees, social and governance. So I think the key learning has been that every cost that we've sustained, every decision that we've taken to maybe close down a site and, and protect police safety is really uh, paying off very well. Because if you don't do that, if you don't act fast, the risk of contagion is very high. And then the liability, maybe not from a legal point of view, but certainly the moral liability lays uh, with the company that's asked those employees to stay together and maybe uh, get infected. Marco, thank you so much for sharing your lessons from Italy with us. I'm sure your insights will be extremely valuable to leaders in other countries. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Martin. I appreciate it. And I, I hope to see you soon in person. 